thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. This chapter is, in a sense, uh, a uh, fulfillment of what, uh, what Abraham was waiting for all these years, which is the birth of his son. After 25 years of waiting, Abraham finally has a son. So why don't we read, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God has commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would suckle children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she bore to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, Cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the lad and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your descendants be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down over against him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, "Let Let me not look upon the death of the child. And as she sat over against him, the child lifted up his voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water, and gave the lad a drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness, and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, 
God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity. But as I have dealt loyally with you, you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know what has, who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have, uh, you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that you may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because they, there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So on the surface of it, this chapter looks a little bit um, disjointed. There are really three parts to it. The first part is obviously the birth of Isaac, verses 1 through 7. The second part is the sending away of Hagar, verses 8 through 21. Obviously, this whole thing makes a complete part. And the third one seems to be separate, which is uh, Abimelech and uh, Abraham, verses 22 through 34. Yet there is a fundamental connection between them, and that is... The reason why this event is recounted is because this is the, the first time ever that, Abim, that Abraham claims possession in the land that will become his. And he does that after the birth of his son. That is the connection between the three parts. Up to this point, he owned nothing of the land. And that well is the first possession that will become his. And in the next chapter we will see there will be a patch of land with a cave where he will bury his wife. And, up, to, and up, up until then he never wanted to own anything. But now the promise that God has made him has started, is, is, is beginning to be fulfilled. In a very simple, natural means. Without any extraordinary events. And we'll look at that in detail as we go through the text. For the time being, let's focus on verses 1 through 7. Verse 1, so as I said earlier, literally a quarter of a century after the promise was made, God fulfilled it. 25 years. It took 25 years for them to wait before the baby was born. It reminds me of a couple of friends, I mean a couple who are friends, who are our friends, they're married. They had a daughter, and they could not have any more children. And for 20 years, the woman prayed to be able to have a child. And nothing happened. And then after 20 years, and this is really recent, they were able to adopt three baby boys. I don't know if you are in the, in the circle of adoption, or if you know anything about the circle of adoption. Being able to adopt... A healthy baby boy who is newborn 
is extremely difficult. They didn't get one, they got three. One after the other. In three years. But they had to wait 20 years. So again, if you're praying for something, don't give up. It's not our time, it is God's time. But in due time, He will answer your prayer if you're faithful, if you are exercising hope, faith and charity, day in, day out, saying these rosaries, praying and asking God to, to, to give you what you need. And you don't exactly know why, but you don't know how many souls you may have saved through your prayers and through your waiting and sacrifices throughout all these years. So, the Lord visited, verse 1, uh, pick up on this word, the Lord visited Sarah, visited, the visitation. Uh, there is a, a constant misconception among Christians and Catholic when we speak of the visitation of the Lord. So, for instance, when you hear in the Gospels, and these will come back, so pick up on them, Jesus speaking about the end times, you know, the famous Gospels, where he, he talks about the stars falling and the sun not giving his light, the moon turning red. Immediately, immediately, the thought goes to what? The end of the world. And uh, given our scientific understanding, we kind of try to imagine this. Quasars and pulsars and black holes, everything is exploding, and we're wondering how can the earth survive with all of this. Was he, he, he's using metaphors, imagery to describe something. And the something he's describing doesn't just apply to the end of the world, it applies to his visitation. When he, what he was talking about was essentially the natural clock that empires use to measure their span of life. And he's basically saying, that's it, it's broken. Time's up. Why? Because he speaks in terms they understand. You count time from the founder, f- founder of the empire, the dynasty, the whatever, whatever, right? Roman, Greek, Babylonian. Now, we've gotten used to counting time since the birth of Christ, and it has held for 2,000 years, which is really extraordinary. But back then, it didn't work this way. So he's basically saying, time's up. That's all he's saying. And what is time's up? Time's up means I'm going to put an end to whatever is opposing my church. I will come and I will clear table. I will visit you. And oh, by the way, that also applies personally. The visitation of the Lord. It applies personally. It doesn't only apply nationally. Right? So God, Jesus, comes and visits us multiple times. Many, many times. It isn't once, it isn't at the end of time. All the political upheavals, all the wars, all the events that happen out there, is Jesus visiting us. Always remember the words of Our Lady in Fatima, when she told the little children, God is about to punish the world with another war. The Second World War was a punishment. For sins committed. It was a visitation of the Lord. Yet there are visitations in gladness. So you, somebody's sick and he's healed. You had an exam that you were scared of and you passed. You narrowly missed an accident on the highway. Your brother who didn't talk to you for 20 years calls you. This is Jesus visiting you. Those things don't happen because we're so good. They don't happen because we're so smart. They don't happen because we deserve it. It is His mercy. It's His mercy poured out on us. But we don't 
We don't hear Him because we're not in tune to His visitation. He comes and He goes and we're not even paying attention. So, He visited. Notice. So when He visited her, she bore a son. What does that mean? It means that it was Jesus who cared for her from the very beginning, from the moment of the conception of that child, all the way until the child was born. That was Jesus' visitation. Every, every, every child is a blessing. It is a moment of visitation from God in your family. It's a special moment. No wonder the devil wanted to turn this upside down and convince women that a child in their womb has become the enemy. Because he knows exactly what he's doing. But the child in the womb is never the enemy. This is God amongst us. It's his presence. It's life. And so from the very moment that that child was conceived, it means that Jesus was with Sarah and cared for Sarah and cared for Isaac all the way through. And that is why you've heard me say multiple times, in the Catholic understanding, in the Catholic conception of sexuality, sexuality is never separate from prayer. Prayer precedes sexuality. And sexuality is so good because it is the body praying. It is the prayer of the body. And that's why the church wants to protect sexuality and give it its full meaning. The church has no problem with sex. It's the world that has a problem with sex because the world can't stop talking about it. The world is obsessed with it. But it's the full meaning of it is the prayer of the body. It is this moment where the body prays to God. That's what it is all about. So that is the meaning of visitation. There's two sides of it. But recognizing it on it all is that the Lord of Lords, the Lord of history, the Lord of your life comes and visits And remember what he said to his disciples in the garden. Therefore, pray. Pray. That's how you know, that's how he knows that you're waiting. The history of our soul is akin to a someone who's in love waiting for the loved one to come back. And every day you go and you wait by that door, waiting, never losing hope that the one whom you love will be back. That's what prayer is all about. So then the rosary, so then the moments of silent prayer at home, retreats, whatever you do in your prayer, you are basically saying to God, I love you and I'm waiting for you to come and visit me. And He will surely come. As He said in the book of Revelation, I am the one who knocks at the door. He knocks at your door. That's the visitation. So therefore, The birth of a child, as you can see here, wasn't just understood as, oh wow, look at me, I got a bigger tribe now. I'm just adding to my economic power. It was really understood as, God has visited us. It isn't a purely, it was never viewed as a purely human activity. It was viewed as, literally, the presence of God amongst us. Because the birth of that child coming through and the mother being in good health and everything happening and rejoicing in it, the moment of rejoicing meant that God is protecting us. God is with us. And notice Abraham. Abraham does not celebrate the birthday of Isaac. He does not celebrate Isaac's birthday. He celebrates what? The circumcision. What is the circumcision? It's the sign of the grafting of a child onto the covenant. 
It is bringing that child home in the family of God. And I'd like to remind all of you of um, the recommended rule of the church when it comes to baptism. A baby who... A a newly born babe should be baptized in four weeks or less. Four weeks or less. Not six months, not a year, and not two years. So if you have family who happens to be in Shanghai or Tombuktu, and they can't come till 12.15, baptize the child, and when they come, have a great celebration. But don't wait. Because... By not baptizing the child, you are essentially testing God. And I would like to remind you again that an, un- an unbaptized child, according to what we know right now from theology, has no way of reaching heaven. Baptism is essential for heaven. So please, don't delay. This is not a, ma- a laughing matter. This is a matter of eternal salvation for the children. Isaac, we've already talked about the name, it means to laugh, but there are now two different laughter. The first one, the first time Sarah laughed, she was laughing almost sarcastically, saying, well, could an older woman be pregnant? Now she's laughing joyfully. Now she's happy. Um, The fact that barrenness was associated with imperfection is not something we carry forward. I want to make that clear. They understood barrenness as imperfection, as if God was not with them. It is true that in certain cases, God did close someone's womb as a punishment. But it is not true that when the womb is closed, it is always a punishment. I want to make that clear. So if you know couples, for instance, who cannot, uh, who are not able to bring forth children, it does not mean that God has cursed them. I want to be very, very clear here. All that is asked of us is to be open to life, and God will take care of the rest, one way or the other. Having said that, it was definitely a joyful moment for her, and that was the name given to the son. To constantly remind them of the joy that God brought into their life. Effectively, one really good way to think about the name Isaac, laughter, is to think about names we give to certain, sometimes to girls, joy. That epitaph is, is given to girls as a first name, indicating or wanting to indicate the joy when the baby was born. And the presence, the joy this, this baby is supposed to bring into our life. Um, if, you have, if you are in a family where you have difficult relationship with your parents, or if you are parents and having really challenging times with your teenagers, take the time as parents to tell the children and remind them that they bring joy to your life. Don't assume they know that. With the way this culture is structured, you can, you can pretty much bet that most of the time they don't know. And if you are children, I would strongly encourage you to have a conversation with your parents and ask them, what does your life mean to them? And let them talk to you. Kids are supposed to be a joyful occasion. Now, many of you know I have seven of them. And I have seven who happen... We've had seven children in nine years. So there were times in... Well, there were actually nine years where we had diapers pretty much for nine years straight with three kids, sometimes four in diapers. We definitely had four car seats, sometimes five car seats in the car. And then it stopped. It stopped like this. It's not that we wanted it to stop. It just stopped. And there are times where, yes, you, you, you're tempted to 
take your kids to visit Alcatraz and leave them there. But fundamentally, children are a great source of joy. A great, and I make sure to let my kids know, and they know it. So please, do not assume your children know. I would pretty much bet that they don't. You have to tell them. Eight days. He is the first person, Isaac is the first person reported to have been so circumcised. And you know what St. Paul did with this text in the letter to the uh, Galatians. Where he compares the circumcision of Isaac at eight days versus the circumcision of Ishmael when he was 13 years old. You know also how St. Paul looks at the eighth day. What what is the eighth day? It's Sunday, the new day. Why is it important to St. Paul? Because he viewed creation as being incomplete on the seventh day. Therefore, the rest of God on the seventh day that is presented to us in Genesis was incomplete. God did not fully rest because of the fall of man. When did God rest? After the resurrection, on the eighth day. And he views the fact that God requested from Abraham to circumcise his son on the eighth day as precisely the sign of the new covenant. So what is circumcision? Circumcision is, in of itself, the sign of the old covenant. But it is more than that. It is a symbol. It is a pointer to what? Baptism. The sacrament of the new covenant that... Jesus instituted on the eighth day by his resurrection. He did it obviously before, but that's when he sealed it, when he rose on the eighth day. That is why it's important to notice that he was circumcised on the eighth day. St. Chrysostom tells us that Sarah became a type of the church. He writes thus, Do you wish to learn the symbolic meaning of Sarah's sterility? The church was to bring forth the multitude of believers, in order, therefore, that you may not find incredible how one who was childless, fruitless and barren, could have given birth. She who by nature was barren went ahead, paving the way for chosen sterility, and Sarah became a type of the church. For just as she gave birth in her old age, when she was barren, so too the church, though barren, has given birth for these the final times. And the idea is therefore the church, barren meaning the church does not give birth to children, yet the church gives birth to us spiritually. Another obvious symbol, symbol representation of Sarah is Our Lady, Mary. right? Because Mary, though did not give us physical birth, yet she is effectively our mother. And in that motherhood, this motherhood is far superior to the natural motherhood. How do we know that? The natural motherhood leads to what? What is the end result of natural motherhood? Death. Our mothers give us birth and we will die. The spiritual motherhood leads to what? Eternal life. That's why it's far superior. Hence, someone like Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa, is she is a true mother, and her motherhood is extremely fruitful, more so than natural motherhood. Likewise, a priest we call father has a fatherhood, and his fatherhood is more fruitful than natural fatherhood. It's a higher order, because it's supernatural. That is why, effectively, any young man or young woman called to be the bride of Christ or a priest for Christ are essentially beloved of Christ because they have now they have sort of 
jumped over the natural covenant and went straight to the supernatural covenant. And so for those of you who are not married, I know these days it is almost counter, um, counterintuitive to speak of the priesthood and or um, being a nun as something too superior than to be a CFO or a CEO or uh, any of the C-level stuff. But I do, I do encourage you to um, do a novena of 30 days to St. Joseph. You can find it on Google. Asking the Lord to reveal to you your vocation. If you have not asked Him yet, you've got to ask the Lord to reveal to you your vocation. What are you called to do? What is your real call? Because until you do, until you are where God wants you to be, you're not going to be happy. You're not going to be happy. So, for, so as an example, there's this lawyer... She's 31 years old, New York, very successful lawyer, big bucks, just left everything. And she not only became a nun, she founded a new order. And we're talking about somebody who wasn't even practicing. That's what God wanted for her. But the world managed to distract her. And we are all distracted by the world. So it takes prayer and true filial love and confidence that God will give you what your heart most desire. Because He will, if you ask. Alright, let's move on to the expulsion of Hagar and Ishmael. The first thing I want to point out to you, I mean, first of all, what do you think of the, Sarah's words? When she told Abraham, verse 10, Cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. What do you think of that? Do you think this was... Do you approve of it? Would you say the same thing? Do you disapprove of it? Where, where do you stand on this? How many of you disapprove of what she said? Okay, how many of you approve what she said? So the, 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 I suppose the ones, those of you did not raise your hand is because you don't know or you're not sure. Make sense? Okay. The first thing I want to point out to you is that we all have the tendency to somehow, even unconsciously, unconsciously, Assume that, morally speaking, we are on firmer ground than these people over there. Why? Number of reasons. Number one, they're from the Middle East. And I'm not, I'm not joking, I'm being serious. There is a fundamental bias against people from the Middle East. doesn't matter where they are, they're from the Middle East. What do these people know about morality or whatever, right? Number one. Number two, they're ancient. Right? They don't have access to Google, iPod, right? And uh, all the good stuff we have access to, and they're not as educated as we are, and we know so much better than we, they do, and therefore, how could they be better? And number three, they're Old Testament po- folks, we're New Testament folks. So, we have this sort of unconscious bias to assume what we feel and what we think is right, and what they're talking about is odd. I would really want to invite you to recognize the tendency and then resist it. Always assume you're wrong and they're right. Why? They're saints. We're not yet. Well, at least I'm not. I don't know about you, but that's, the, that's a reasonable assumption to make here. The, 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 the familiarity and knowledge of God that Abraham and, I and Sarah have is far superior to most of us. Hence, 
Once you flip things around and you go past this notion of, how could she do this? That's horrible. I would never do that. Now you're becoming attentive to Scripture. Now you're not trying to get Scripture to fit into your mold. You're recognizing, okay, I don't get this. This makes no sense to me. But fundamentally, this must be right. And I don't understand it. And then you can roll up your sleeves and get down and do some hard work to really perceive what's going on. Fortunately, most of the heavy lifting has been done for us through the fathers and their commentaries. We can rely on that. So let's see what's going on here exactly with this, with this passage. So, um, first, this happened when he was weaned. Now, you know what weaning means. It means, essentially, that the child is not breastfeeding anymore. An interesting commentary is that the age at which infants were weaned varied in different societies. In Egypt and Assyria, breastfeeding often lasted three years. Uh, similarly in Israel, at least in the second temple times. So, for instance, in the second book of Maccabees, chapter seven twenty-seven, there is a reference to weaning children. One rab- rabbinic statement limits the practice to 24 months. While other, another mentions a period of four or five years. Why do you think somebody or a couple might want to extend breastfeeding for five years? It's a contraceptive. It's for contraception. That's why rabbis limit it to two years. It is natural contraception, but it is contraceptive. For most women, not for all. Certainly didn't work with my wife. But for many women, it does work. So if, if a woman is breastfeeding, um, she will not conceive, uh, she will not be pregnant with another, with, an, with another child. Weaning marked the completion of her first significant stage in life cycle of an infant. I want to point something out to you. So, as I said, Isaac was weaned, and that's the process that begins the separation. There is another really interesting point that is made by an anonymous uh, writer of the Patristic Times. You can search all of Scripture and you will never find it said about any unjust person that he grew. Right? When you look here in verse 8, and the child grew. The same saying was said about Jesus in the Gospel of St. Luke. He grew. You can search the entire Scripture. You will never find an unjust person said about an unjust person, that he grew. It never happens. Why? Because what's, what's understood here isn't just the physical growth. It's the spiritual growth. Right? To grow, to become a man, doesn't just mean that we grow physically. That's very important. And mentally, very important. And emotionally, as I just mentioned, very important. But also spiritually. Spiritually. And Isaac grew... And was weaned. So he was balanced. He was being balanced as he grew in all four levels. Spiritual, emotional, physical, and mental. The four dimensions of a person. The four pillars. Right? And I, incidentally, if you do meet a young woman or a young man that might become your husband or wife, it might be a good idea to inquire about those four levels through a conversation and find out where they stand at. Because then you will know whether you're marrying a man 
or a woman or you're marrying into a problem before it happens. Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. The English hides the meaning. So we need to look at it a little bit more carefully. So playing could either mean amusing himself or playing with Isaac. The, the, the Hebrew word is metzahek, which is that Ishmael was ridiculing the fuss made of Isaac and asserting his claim to be the firstborn. Origen, however, Origen is one of the um, early writers that is uh, frequently quoted, points, the fo- points out the following. Isaac's scripture says grew and became strong. That is, Abraham's joy grew as he looked, not at those things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. The reference I was making earlier, may, may, making earlier about the spiritual side of Isaac. Okay. And he makes a really beautiful comment here. He says, Do you wish to hear why Abraham rejoiced? So I'm, I'm talking about the rejoicing of Abraham. I'll come back to the point I wanted to make about Isaac. He says, Hear the Lord saying to the Jews, Abraham your father desired to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And Origen says, In this way therefore Isaac grew, that vision of Abraham in which he saw the day of Christ and the hope which is in Christ were increasing his joys. Essentially, what he's saying, this is mystical theology, obviously, is that when he looked at Isaac, his son, he didn't only see Isaac, but he saw the fulfillment of the promise, Jesus. And in seeing that, he fully rejoiced. Okay. And Origen adds this, which I think is beautiful, and would that you too might be made Isaac and be a joy to your mother, the church. So that each and every one of you, man or woman, be like Isaac in the eyes of the church. A source of rejoicing. And when does the church rejoice in her sons and daughters? At the altar. That's what he's calling for all of us to be. Now, let's go back to this point. Why did she cast them out? Let's read the writings of St. Paul. The first, the first chapter in letter of Galatians. He writes the following. For it is written, verse 20, 22 and following, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and, and, and the other by the freeborn woman. The son of the slave woman was born naturally, the son of the freeborn through a promise. Now this is an allegory. These women represent two covenants. One was from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. This is Hagar. Hagar represents Sinai, a mountain in Arabia, It corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery along with her children. But the Jerusalem above is freeborn, and she is our mother, the church. For it is written, Rejoice, you barren one who bore no children. Break forth and shout, you who were not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the deserted one than of her who who has a husband. He's quoting uh, um, Isaiah. Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise... But just as then, the child of the flesh persecuted the child of the spirit, it is the same now. So St. Paul looks at that passage we're looking at, and he sees Ishmael persecuting Isaac. Interesting, isn't it? That's what he sees. Now, it's not obvious to us. But what does the scripture say? He continues, Drive out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not share the inheritance with the son of the freeborn. Therefore, brothers, we are children not of the slave woman, 
but of the freeborn woman. Notice how in the eyes of St. Paul, things are very clear. You're either in the church, in which case salvation is offered to you, or you're outside the church, in which case salvation is not offered to you. We have a hard time with these concepts today. We have a really hard time, because we have what I, I have come to call, over the years, teaching this Bible study, right? mushy compassion. Right? Compassion born of a sense of guilt. And compassion born out of a sense of no real belief in the powers of the church to accept things the way they are. Well, we can't really say you have to be in the church to be saved. Everybody's saved. Well, not really, according to St. Paul. Be it as it may, let's go back. How could he be persecuting him? Origin continues. If therefore the flesh, which is, which is Ishmael, who was born according to the flesh, represents attracts the spirit, which is Isaac, and deals with him with enticing deceitfulness, if it allures him with delights, if it mitigates him with pleasures, this kind of play of the flesh with the spirit especially offends Sarah, who represents virtue. And Paul judges allurements of this kind to be the most bitter persecution. Persecution doesn't have to be, I'll kill you with a spare. Persecution doesn't mean necessarily, I'll put you against the wall, and if you don't renounce Christ, I'll shoot you. There is a form of persecution that is subtle, that is very subtle, but no less real, and which today, those of us who really want to be faithful to Christ, suffer much from it. Listen to what Origen is saying again. And you, therefore, or hear of these words, not suppose that alone in persecution, that you're alone in persecution whenever you're compelled by the madness of the pagans to sacrifice to idols. Do not suppose this is the only possible persecution. But if perhaps the pleasure of the flesh allures you, if the allurement of lust sports with you, flee these things as the greatest persecution if you are a child of virtue. Indeed, for this reason the Apostle also says, flee fornication, but also if injustice should attract you, so that accepting the countenance of the mighty, that means in modern turn, being seen as cool. And because of this, his artful twisting, you render an unjust judgment. You ought to understand that under the guise of play, you suffer a seductive persecution by injustice. But you should also consider it a persecution of the spirit by individual guises of evil, even if they are pleasant and delightful and similar uh, to play, because in all these, virtue is offended. I was invited to the beach yesterday by a really good friends of ours. I was on the beach. I just couldn't look anywhere. It's offensive. I'm, I'm just like this. And when my kids would call me, it's like, yeah, I see you. Sure. Now can we go away? It's offensive. We're so used to it by now. The bikinis and all that, we just assume it's natural, it's normal. We have no idea how offensive it is. It is beyond words. If you really, really take your faith seriously, you will start to see it this way. It is extremely offensive. There is a book that I recommend you read. It's called Under... Angel's Wings. It's written by a young woman who lived, I think, in Brazil or uh, Mexico. She was a Latin American. And since, since she was three years old, she 
was able to speak to her guardian angel. And all her life, she interacted with her guardian angel constantly. Constantly. I'll give you a couple of examples. We're talking 19th century, all right? 19, early 19th century, so almost close to the 18th century, she went with her parents to the beach. And when she came back, her friends asked her, what do you see? And she kept her head down. She didn't say anything. Because as soon as she hit the beach, her angel stood before her and spread his wings so she could see nothing. At one point, somebody brought her over for her to be able to ride a horse. And being a very young kid, not knowing what she's doing, she wanted to ride the horse like a man. Right? Like the men ride horses. And her angel was extremely displeased. So she came down. She didn't ride the horse. And on and on it goes. We have strayed so far away in terms of modesty, virtue. We, our, eyes, our eyes have been so blinded by the world, we don't even see it anymore. But it is. In the eyes of God, objectively, as we saw it last week, no matter what we think of it, Objectively, a great persecution to the faithful to not be able to walk without seeing a semi-naked woman in front of you. Or a woman with clothes so tight that she might as well be naked. And most of these women, by the way, think of themselves as being well-dressed. And I'm not just talking about guys. I'm talking about girls. It's not a problem only for us. It's a problem for you as well. Because they set the model that everybody follows. And for your mothers, I'm sure, and our, you know, and parents fighting with kids, you can't, you can't, you can't go out like this. Why not? Everybody does it. That's what Sarah saw. She saw that the outlook that Ishmael had on things was simply worldly, and it will, in time, move Isaac away from virtue. You know, you have to have very strict rules in your homes. And you should not be afraid of asserting them. So in my house, I have a pool. When the kids were little, it was a great thing. I have six girls, by the way. And so they tend to invite girls to come over in the pool. I set very strict rules on what I find acceptable for my daughters and for their friends. But, but Dad, they do things differently. Great. They can do things differently in their home. When they come here, they do it the way we do it. I am selective with whom my kids play. Because I am looking at those virtues. I want to see what kind of influence those kids are going to have on them. And I have no problem and no qualm cutting a relationship when I think this is not healthy. This is what we're talking about. That's what she saw. And she reacted immediately. This is tough love. But you know what? It is love that takes God into account. She sets a wonderful example for the mother. Mothers, you are called to be guardians of virtue in your homes. And again, the devil knew what to do this century. He attacked you. He attacked you. He broke this relationship, this example between a woman and Our Lady, between a woman and Sarah. Women prefer to follow Jezebel in the way they dress, in the way they act, than they would rather follow Our Lady or, or, or Sarah, because it's boring. It's not pretty. It's not fashionable. It's not all these wonderful things. Now, though all these wonderful things are wonderful, and it's great. 
A woman needs to take care of herself, definitely, but not as the primary reason for her existence. And why is this happening? Because the guys did what the guys do best. Okay, I'm not responsible. Bye-bye. You can do whatever you want. I'm off the hook now. Men forgot to be men. That's what we're facing. In your home, as men, you are the head of the family. You set the trend. You tell your children how to dress and what not to dress. You're not their friend. You're their father. That's what you have to do as men. You have to back your wife. She's going to need you. Big time. Dad, what should I wear? I'll talk to your mother. Don't bother me. Good luck. Can't do that. You must be guardians of virtues in your home. Think about what you wear. Think how you act. Look at you in the mirror and ask this question. Would Our Lady approve of how I'm dressed right now? If she doesn't, why are you dressed this way? Men and women. That's what we're dealing with here. That's why she is such a remarkable woman. She didn't hesitate one moment. Cast her off. Push her away. Now, Abraham was attached. Ishmael was the first son he had. And remember, as was pointed earlier, he is his son. He's not, according to their laws and according to the customs of the time, because Sarah said, have a child through her, he became his son. And he has right of inheritance. So as far as he was concerned, what are you doing? Right? He didn't see what she saw. Why, why, why do you want to send him away? He wasn't happy with it. But notice, he didn't sue her. He didn't argue. He didn't come down heavy-handed on her. He didn't call her names. He didn't do any of that, did he? He was displeased, but he said nothing. Notice the man. He took time to reflect on it. And he took it into prayer. And God responded. And in this case, he said, listen to your wife. I want to point out to you the way God answers. Because as I said, I, uh, Ishmael was his son according to human law. But watch what God says. God tells him, be not displeased because of the lad and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your descendants be named. Now, verse 13 is the interesting one. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman. Not of your son. And obviously this will be stated in a stronger language in a couple chapters from now when he calls him to perform the ultimate sacrifice. Because then, in a couple chapters, God will say to Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham will say, here I am. And he will say, take your son, your only son. See, there is our laws and our ways of looking at things. And the way we compromise and we patch things up. And then there's God's way of looking at things. He's the son of the slave woman. He was never his son. By the way, this position I described to you from origin, you will find it stated also in St. Ephraim. St. Ephraim says pretty much the same thing. And St. John Chrysostom. Even though the the legal position of Ishmael is quite clear, Sarah had undertaken to recognize as her own the male offspring of the union of Abraham with Hagar, right? That was what happened earlier. So what is she asking for here? 
Well, the laws of Hammurabi, which is an, the oldest legal law we know, and remember back then they were not Israelites, right? So probably this law would prevail. And there's another one, not as complete, but earlier, the law of Lipit Ishtar, implicitly make inheritance rights a legal consequence of the father's acceptance of the infant as his legitimate son. So there is no doubt that Ishmael was entitled to a share of Abraham's estate. The key of Sarah's demand lie, no doubt, in the clause that states within Lipid Ishtar, which stipulated that the father may grant freedom to the slave woman and the children she has borne him, in which case they forfeit their share of the paternal property. And you can find references to that in the book of Judge, chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Sarah is asking Abraham to exercise that legal right. So even legally, Sarah was not contravening to the law. That's the clause that he was using to be able to let go of them. Legally. And so, Abraham says nothing. The following day, he takes her, he takes Ishmael, even though it breaks his heart. And he sends them away. Now, while they're gone, a couple of things that are really interesting. Obviously, the situation for her is extremely harsh. It's very difficult. Because they're in going down to Egypt in a deserted road, and they got lost. And the water ran out, and she's with her son, and there's nothing. And they're about to die. But then God speaks to her. Whenever you read the angel of the Lord, it isn't an angel. right? Unless specifically mentioned, usually it's not the angel, it's the Lord himself. The angel of the Lord spoke to her and directed her to water and told her not to worry because he will make of him a great nation. And he did. Right? He made of uh, Ishmael a great nation. The point I want to make is the following. Um, verse 19, he opened her eyes. There was a well. The well was there, she didn't see it. He opened her eyes to the well. This, re- this is an e- there is an echo in the Gospel of St. John of another woman at another well where the Lord is present and speaking to her. She's at the well. She's not aware whom she's talking to. And he had to open her eyes. He had to open her eyes. Sometimes you wonder, well, how come, how come they cannot see it? How come they cannot? You're talking about a friend or a sister or somebody you know, and they just are, you're talking about the faith, they're just out there. No connection. How come they cannot see it? Their eyes are closed. That's why. Their eyes are closed. Yeah, physically they can see, but their eyes are closed. Now, if you can accept that, which is hard, it's hard to accept that somebody you love who's outside of the church or doesn't pray, you don't want to go to church, etc., has his eyes closed. I mean, it's shocking. But, but if you accept it, then you start looking for the right solution. If his eyes are closed, what does it take? What is it going to take for his eyes to be open? If somebody is physically blind, can you make him see? No. You have to take him to a doctor, right? Maybe they can do something. But let's take somebody who's physically blind and he's convinced he can see. Can you do something? I can see. I can see just fine. No, you don't. You see nothing. I see everything. There's this hardness of the heart. So for somebody whose eyes are closed spiritually, obviously we can't do anything. But if on top of it, the heart is hardened where he thinks he sees when he doesn't see, you have 
two problems. Can you solve those problems? Can I solve those problems? No. If we could, Jesus would not have had to die on the cross. Right? What does that mean by Jesus dying on the cross? What does that mean? It means He did it, right? What does that mean? It means you have to leave it up to Him. You have to leave it up to Him. It's not your time. It's not my time. It's not your strength, nor mine, nor our power. It is His. Okay, so then what can you do? Okay, pray. But what does that mean when we say pray? What does that mean, pray? Prayer, verbal prayer is good. It's good. It's not as powerful as if you associate with your prayer some form of sacrifice. So sometimes fasting is absolutely necessary. If you know, if somebody whom you love is really deep into some uh, a relationship that is really bad for them, but he, he, but he can't get out of it, it has something to do with the flesh, fasting. You need to fast. You need to fast. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. And other times, you have to just sacrifice something. When you do that, what does that mean? Does this mean you suddenly have the power to change something? No. So why are you doing it for? What's its purpose? Its purpose to say to Jesus, I'm serious. I really mean it. It's costing me something. I really care. It's one thing for your son, who's four years old, comes to you and says, Dad, we should give money to the poor. And he then goes play. It's a different thing if it, this four-year-old will tell you, I'm not going to eat breakfast from now till Christmas, and all the money I'm saving, I want it to go to the poor. You think you'll move if he said that? You'll move very quickly. Why? Because you will be moved. So there is a case of a five-year-old who had leukemia here in the United States. And when he learned, and so in the advanced stage, is very, very painful. And he was dying. But he asked his, his father, and he said, uh, Daddy, is it true that if I, uh, if I give my, my pain to Jesus, he can save souls with it? He says, yes, it's true. And the five years old refused to take medication, pain medication, until the day he died. Five. Does this move you? Now, how do you think it moves the heart of Jesus? Yeah, he can lift up mountains with this. That's what we're talking about. Okay, so that's how her eyes were opened. Okay, I want to read to you one more quotation from St. John Chrysostom, and then we'll say a little bit about Abraham's pact with Abimelech. It won't be very long. In like manner, speaking about uh, Hagar and a child, even if we are utterly alone, even if we are in desperate trouble, even if we have no hope of survival, we need no other assistance, since God's grace is all we require. You see, if we win favor with him, no one will get the better of us. But rather, we will prevail against anyone. God was with the boy, the text goes on. He grew up and lived in the desert. In similar fashion, whenever we have God on our side, even if we are utterly alone, we will live more securely than those who dwell in the cities. After all, the grace of God is the greatest security and the most impregnable fortification. So often we live like a, 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 a Rockefeller who's starving because we don't know how to write a check. If you're living in a state of grace, if you're going to church every Sunday, if you're in the friendship of God, if you're praying and trying to become a better 
a Catholic. Enjoy it. What, what do I mean by that? Let go of everything that worries you. You are with God. God is with you. Why are you worried? Why do you let the, the, the devil rob you from the peace that is yours in Christ? Let go. There's an exam that's worrying you? Let go. There's a health issue worrying you? Let go. The future of the planet is worrying you? Let go. It's not your planet. The last time I checked, it's His. Let go. Trust in Him. He is with you. You'd be like sitting with the richest man on earth and you're fretting because you don't have three bucks to go to McDonald's. Not funny. I mean, it's funny in a sad way. But that's how we are most of the time. Now, I'm not saying, you know, smack a smile on your, on your face and smile all the time. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this inner peace that supports you through all the difficulties and frustrations and crises of the day, which are all the gifts that God gives you to grow in holiness. At least focus on that. Try to. At least at the end of your day, let go. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. And when I say these prayers at night, sometimes I say, Thy will be done and not mine. Thy kingdom come and not mine. To kind of remind me of what I'm fighting against. Alright. Let's look at this pact with Abimelech. The whole issue revolves around this business of a well. Now remember, we are, they live in a semi-arid region and water is supremely important, especially if you have herds. Right? Without water, you can't, your herd won't survive. So it's essentially a very important piece of real estate, this well. First, um, after the expulsion of Ishmael, Abimelech, the king, and uh, 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 Phicol, his, uh, his commander, show up. Now, if the two of them showed up, they didn't show up all by themselves. They showed up with, a, with an army. Okay. Why are they showing up? Because Abimelech is not stupid. He recognizes the strength of Abraham, and now he wants to seal this covenant with him because he's been living there for some time and is afraid that he might just take over or declare war on him. So he comes and he's negotiating with him on this. And Abraham says, I will do it, but then he points to, I will, I will swear this covenant with you, but your servants took away my well. Now notice the peaceability of Abraham. He didn't declare war on them. He didn't go after them to destroy them. He didn't start you know, swearing to the high heavens, how could they do something like this to him? He didn't say anything until Abimelech came and told him, I want to sign this pact with you. And then he pointed out the problem. That was the well he dug, and they took, they came, Abimelech's servants came and took the well away from him. But again, he trusted in God. And God brought the solution to his footsteps, to his footstool. Abimelech showed up, and then he said, well, I didn't know about that, I'll take care of it. And they signed that covenant. Now, I'll point a couple of really interesting things about the text because, oh yeah, here we go. The, the composition of the text is very interesting because each of the names of the two principal characters, Ab, Ab, Abraham and Abimelech, occurs exactly seven times. There are seven new lambs. Both the verb to swear 
and the name Beersheba contain the same Hebrew stem as the word for seven. So you've got seven written all over the place. Right? And, and by now you've heard me say many, many times, seven is the number of the covenant. Because to make a covenant is to seven oneself. Right? So they're essentially cutting a covenant between the two of them. And um, Abimelech effectively suggesting a pact of mutual non-aggression. As a result, Abraham says, here's the situation, and I'm going to give you these seven new lambs to make sure before all, by you accepting those seven new lambs, you're agreeing, you're declaring, this is my well. Why is that important to him? Because now he has a son. Now the promise begins to be fulfilled. And notice, one more time, the, the way God fulfills the promise. It ain't the heaven opening, you know, light streaming down, trumpets and angels and supernatural events. It's Abraham buying a well. So look at your own lives. It doesn't look, when you look at it bit by bit, that God is working His plan in your life, does it? Because usually... There are no angels and no trumpets and no streaming light and nothing extraordinary, is there? It's usually very, very, very ordinary. Why is that? Because the mark of the beginner in the road to faith is to seek the extraordinary outside of the ordinary. And the mark of the one who is advanced in the faith is to seek the extraordinary in the ordinary. You're here tonight, aren't you? Listening to me talk. Do you know how extraordinary this is? It's very extraordinary. It's extremely extraordinary, especially to me. Because it's unlikely. I'm not a theologian. My formation is in computer science. Look at us, coming from different backgrounds. Different countries. You think this is ordinary? But we, we, we don't see the extraordinary. Look at a hand of a child. Just Im- examine the hand. It is extraordinary. Look at a flower. Look at you driving through traffic. It's truly extraordinary. But we don't see it. We've lost the sense of wonder. Because we want the extraordinary outside of the ordinary. And in a sense, it's a small way of turning our backs on Jesus. Because He's with us through it all. And the most extraordinary event of them all, the Mass on Sunday, that we can go to Mass. is such an extraordinary thing. But it takes familiarity with the Lord and prayer to grow in that peaceful, extraordinary, ordinary. But Abraham was there. And so I think tonight, as you go home, maybe you would want to consider spending a little bit of time in prayer of thanksgiving. Just sit down and then think about all the events that happened in your life since you were born. All the good people that God put on your path. All the good things that happened to you. And just gives. Give thanks to the Lord. Just thank Him. That's all. Recognize all the good things He put in your, in your path. And thank Him for it.
Just as he was there for Abraham and Sarah, he is here with each one of us. God bless you. All right, questions? The first time? Yes. She was... No, no, the first time Sarah did not kick her out, she ran away. And she came back. And now that was the second time. So she came back and she lived with them. And Ishmael lived with them and he grew there. For, so he was 16 years old when Abraham had to send him away. Uh, Abraham. Yes, yes. He spent 16 years under the house of Abraham. Yep. Yes. Very good question. When I said, so I said to let go. And at the same time I said pray and fast. So it sounds like I'm talking about two different things at the same time. What I mean by letting go is is the ownership of whatever you're praying for. You know how it is when you go to, if you're working, you're studying, the professor may say, I want you to take this test. You don't own the test. You just have to do it. If you can function in such a way that you just do what you have to do to take the test, but never owning it, then you're never attached to it. So likewise, if you have, let's say, a car. Let's say your brother loaned you the car. You're driving the car. So you do everything you can to maintain the car. But you never have a sense of ownership because it's never yours. So if you can treat everything in your life this way, you're giving up. But it doesn't mean you're not doing what you have to do. Make sense? Okay. So whatever, whatever matter is in your life right now that is concerning you, you bring it into prayer. And especially if it is one that concerns others, where you really cannot influence them, you cannot change them, but you know that something has to happen, that the first thing you have to do in the proper order is to examine yourself. Are your intentions pure? For instance, um, Lord, my wife doesn't like baseball. She won't let me watch the baseball match every Sunday. Please change her. Am I having pure intentions? No. You think Lord, the Lord is going to hear me? No. You understand? I'll give you another example. That might be surprising. There's a child who's really sick. And the mother is praying that the child be healed. Is she having pure intentions? Maybe. Because if she's praying that the child be healed, simply on account of her own pain, her intentions are not pure. Right? But if she's praying that the child be healed because God inspired her for this prayer, her intentions are pure. How do we know the difference? That's it. Why? Because we want everyone to go to heaven. So if you truly love someone, and someone is sick, the first question we want to ask the Lord, if this illness is His passport to heaven... God, give me the grace to bear it. But if it is not good for him, heal him. Now you're praying according to God's heart. You understand? So the first thing, purification of intention. How does that happen? Examination of conscience. So most of us have a hard time with prayer because we don't examine our conscience regularly. And the examination of conscience needs to last five minutes. If you can do it every day, just sit down and you ask your guardian angel to help you see two or three things you did this today that you should have done a little bit differently. So it's not racking your brain, torturing yourself. And, oh, I don't remember what I did between 10.43 and 10.59. Now, that's not, just 
What are those three things? Maybe I, I spoke harshly to somebody. Maybe I wasn't as amiable towards someone else. Maybe, whatever they are, those three things, now, okay, I need to pay attention to those so I can change them. Examination of conscience is a good foundation for good prayer. Then, you learn about what is it that you're trying to, you really try to understand what you, what you are after with this prayer. Jesus always asked those people who came to him, what do you want me to do for you? He expected them to know. And most of them would say, Lord, that I may see. Lord, that I may be healed. The answer was succinct, direct, straight to the point. Right? So, again, find out exactly what is it. Then, you're now in a third state to be able to offer your petition to God. Right? And the fourth thing is to make sacrifice. So, let's talk about sacrifice for a second. Let's say... I'll give you a variety of examples. So it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't all necessarily have to relate to food, although fasting from food is always a good thing. The idea is to pick something that you like and to give it up. I'll give you some examples, simple ones. Um, When you talk, you say like all the time. Give it up. It's hard. It's annoying. It's going to irritate you. Now you're making a little bit of effort on something that is very simple. Another example. There is a TV that, you know, episode that you just can't live without. Give that up. A third one. When you make up in the middle of the night at 3 o'clock, you're going to the bathroom, you go check your email. (laughs) By the way, this is one of the signs that somebody is an email addict. And there are, there's a whole branch of psychology being developed right now for people to offer counseling for people like that. They're really addicted. Right? I'm exaggerating, maybe. Right? Give it up. The list goes on. Right? You pick a couple of things to show the Lord that you're really willing to give something up for that person, for this thing. Your prayer is far more effective. Yes? Well, it, it will depend on your own constitution to begin with. So, for instance, let's say you're hypoglycemic, or you have diabetes, or you have blood pressure, or some, obviously you have to make sure you take care of all these things. Suppose you have none of those issues, right? Uh, then you, you pick up a discipline that you know you can live with, and you do it on one condition only. If fasting is going to cause you to, be, to become irascible, meaning... Uh, choleric, right? So somebody says something, you just explode. Forget it. I'm not going to buy you anything. You know that, right? So pick something that you know you can peacefully live through while it's an offering. I'll give you an example. This whole business of fish, not eating meat on Fridays, eating fish, I personally find it very fishy. (laughs) I never bought into it. Oh, it's horrible. We have to go eat fresh fish. What a punishment. If you like fish, I'm sorry, that's not punishment. Right? On the other hand, if you're like me, and all fish taste like wet cardboard, this is exactly how fish tastes for me. I don't understand why anybody likes fish. But I trust that it must be good. But I'm missing something. I don't know what it is. It just tastes like cardboard. I don't like fish. So eating fish for me on Friday is really good. Giving up salt, whatever, right? A variety of things come to you. But a couple of things. 
do it for a specific period of time. Right? And set strict rules around it. You have to think about it. I'll give you an example. You're fasting, right? 21 days, you're doing novena, you decide to fast. All the days except on Sundays. No fasting on Sundays, right? You don't fast on Sundays. Saturday, you're invited to a wedding. Now what do you do? Whatever you do, don't invent rules on the fly. You're three minutes before you start to eat. Oh, what am I going to do now? Well, I'll eat the muffin because it's not salty, but I'm not going to touch the fish because there's salt in it. That's good. No. Make strict rules and know what you're dealing with ahead of time and stick to them. Okay? Be very practical, basically. Uh, you mean at the wedding? Am I saying don't eat at the wedding? No, I would actually not say that. If you've accepted to go to the wedding, that means you want to honor the, the uh, bride and the groom by your presence. So if you're going to do that, you honor them. Whatever they serve you, you eat. Now, if they've given you the choice ahead of time to say meat or vegetarian, obviously you'd avail yourself of a vegetarian plate. But if they haven't, whatever they put before you, you eat. Okay? That's much better than doing your own thing at the expense of the bride and groom. Okay? Right. Right. But keep these things. The law of charity is above all laws. And that has to be kept. That's why I said if, you get, if you're fasting and getting so irritable that you're, you know, uh, um, aggravating your children and your wife, please don't fast. All right? It's, it's missing the point. Yeah? Okay. Any other question? Yes. Okay. You said three things. Let's deal with them one at a time. First of all, the passage of Sarah saying of laughter, she was not cynical. She was rejoicing. All right? Because she said specifically, um, God has made laughter for me. That means God made joy. Whereas before there was no laughter. God made laughter for me. Before I wasn't laughing. Now I am. Right? Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Meaning, over me doesn't mean at my expense. Over me means around me, with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would suckle children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Actually, the structure of these verses is a poem. It's three, three words per verse. So it's a fairly old poem that is being said here. There is no note of sarcasm at all. She is amazed and she is happy. Do you see that? In our context, yes. But from her perspective, it's like laughter has been brought back to me because I wasn't laughing before. Right? That's what it means. And she's really saying the name Isaac. Keep that in mind. It's his name. So there's pleasure for her to say the name of her son. Okay? Yeah. All right? So that's the first thing. As to Sarah being wiser than Abraham, a couple compliments each other. In certain things, my wife sees with twenty twenty. I don't. Right? In others, I do. In this case, she saw that when he didn't. Now, does it mean that it made her wiser than he is? I don't think we can make that case one way or the other. But the case that we can make, and the fathers have been making this consistently. Now, I haven't been quoting them systematically, but if you read Origen, if you read St. John Chrysostom, St. Ephraim, all of them call Sarah virtue. Symbolically, they see her as virtue. 
Right? So from their perspective, it really fit within that calling of hers to be the virtuous one. Okay? Um, so that's, that's why in that specific instance she was able to see that. And the third thing was that um, she told Abraham what she wanted. It was up to him to deal with it, not her. It is his role. Abraham gave her only water for the road because God said, I will take care of them. So he didn't want to presume that he will do what God said he would do for them. That's why. Otherwise, Abraham would probably have sent them with a whole truckload of things. But God said, I will take care of him. That's why. Yes, last question. Because when God established the covenant, there are two reasons. The first reason, and the most obvious one, is that the initial covenant established between Adam and Eve, one man, one woman. Hagar is not his wife. The, right there, you know she's outside the initial covenant. Moses is not still around. Moses is 400 years later. That's Abraham. So you have to have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph goes down to Egypt. 400 years in Egypt, then Moses. Even if they did, when they asked Jesus about that, the Lord told them, Moses permitted you to have more than wife, one wife for the hardness of your heart. It was essentially um, a compromise during the Old Covenant to put up with that weaknesses of yours. Translation, if Moses didn't allow you to have more than one wife, you'd probably kill your wife to go get another one. That's the first reason is that, yes, one man, one woman. You notice how, how the Lord spoke here. The son of the slave woman. He never said your son. God never called Ishmael your son. Never. Right? So that's a very strong confirmation that Ishmael was never part of the covenant. The other reason is that she's Egyptian. Yeah, the line of Seth. So that's the other reason. So two reasons why she's outside of the covenant. Exactly. Exactly. Outside of the new covenant, right? But none of, none of them escapes the covenant with... Yeah, exactly. Exactly, yes. All right? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.